to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. I'm Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Tom Mills. Tom, it's been a little while since we've uh, published one of these podcasts. It has, I'm afraid. We we apologised for our absence last time, and then didn't come back again for like three weeks or something. But we will be back um, more regularly. I was going to say, the good news for our dedicated core listenership is that we have a number of very strong shows scheduled so we should have something approximating uh, regular output for the next few weeks yeah this is the first we're on a roll and this is the beginning of the roll i mean this leads us doesn't it into this is the final lap of the difficult second season so we're going to have to end on a high note yeah um, and we will so tom what have you been up to over the summer these last few uh, weeks what have I been up to? Um, well, all kinds of things, really. Um, but what would be interesting to people listening? I mean, I suppose uh, there was that article in The Independent, which uh, I wrote last week or the week before. Um, yet another piece on the politics of the BBC, if people can, can bear to read it. The sort of hook, if you can stand those journalistic cliches, was to do with the Today programme's um, loss of listenership, which then became a sort of a story for about half a day, like these things are. So, um, yeah. That yeah, it's, it's social media does funny things to our sense of split, sort of sense of time, doesn't it? But it was yeah. a it was an article that got uh, a great deal of pickup. I think partly because, as you say, it, it landed in the middle of a, a mini squall of attention around the BBC, um, which have historically been quite rare, but which I think are becoming more common partly through um social media um, yeah because there, there was the um bbc switch off um hashtag as well which i think was that was last week wasn't it and this article came the week before <clears throat> it didn't really get much pickup um as a story in itself i mean although interestingly it did in scotland where there had been a, a controversy around which i think began with the bbc requesting that an independence campaign and remove some of its material from their YouTube channel. And so so there, there was the kind of Scottish angle, uh, which in terms of the politics of the BBC, you know, the Scots are kind of ahead of the English in terms of how they perceive the BBC as an establishment broadcaster and so on. So it was interesting because they had, I mean, this is a slightly different question to that independent um, piece, but that, that did get a little bit of pick up and discussion in the Scottish press and, and the politics of the BBC. But for this one, yeah, it was the Today programme. Um, I mean, basically what it was, was the official radio listening figures had come out and um, they had a, a drop of 800,000, more than 800,000, I think it was, uh, listeners. And then, you know, it's a funny thing because it's not, nobody really knows why there's been a drop of listeners. I mean, the Today programme itself said it was in line with other um, news programming uh, viewerships, but it didn't. It didn't seem to be matched by the figures that I had available, although they obviously have more detailed figures available. Um, but then the assumption or the argument for the article is that it's probably got something to do with people just basically being fed up with the Today programme and its sort of right-wing drift, essentially, which I think, you know, the argument resonates with two slightly distinct constituencies. One is Corbyn supporters and the other is the anti-Brexit sort of group, although I guess there's a small... there is a crossover... Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of the argument of 
of my article. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, it definitely, I mean, whatever you think about that specific argument, I mean, it, is, it does seem clear to me, I don't know what you think of this, Dan, but there, there has been a gradual change of mood on the BBC. And it's something, you know, we've discussed on and off, I think. That's right. I mean, I think, and a number of things are are in play there. I mean, there's always been a, a sort of, there's always been a bedrock of right-wing hostility towards the BBC, which has been obviously, you know, constantly re- rehearsed in the in the tabloid press. Um, and that, that's kind of always, there's always been that drum roll claiming that the BBC is a, is a nest of social liberals, effete elites, posit Trotskyites, and so on. Um, you, you're right, I think, to identify the Scottish independence referendum as a moment where a new body of critical opinion began to coalesce. Um, their coverage during the referendum um, raised a, a lot of questions, I think, uh, particularly amongst um, those uh, in favour of independence. And since then, we've seen, um, as you say, the the arrival of Corbyn, um, and again, quite an organised constituency that are looking much more critically at the way that the BBC covered the Labour Party and, and politics more generally. Um, mm. And then, of course, um, the Remainer um, uh, faction or the Remainer body of opinion after the referendum um, has been intensely aware and often highly critical of the BBC's coverage of the Brexit process, you know, personified to some extent by someone like Andrew Adonis, who yeah. is a very kind of establishment figure and is not known for sort of outspoken critiques of the BBC before um, 2016. Um, but he, he and others of, of his stripe have become much more, much more openly um, challenging of the BBC. Uh, I mean, the, the, the traditional response to critiques of the BBC that didn't come from the right-wing press was to say, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're playing into Murdoch's hands if you criticise the BBC. Do you know, um, I saw that the other week. Um, I'm going to get hit and pronounce his surname wrong. I think it's Rory. I think it actually is Kellen Jones, or it might, I, I would have pronounced it Selen Jones, but I have a feeling... Now I'm maybe I'm double brushing plucking myself, but anyway, he's the BBC's um, uh, technology correspondent, That's right. and he yeah. made he made more or less this argument the other day. He was saying, you know, for those criticising the BBC, th- these are whose hands you're playing into. But it wasn't Murdoch; he was actually retweeting um, Guido Forbes, um, and he was mentioning um, a boycott of the BBC licence fee. And actually, you are seeing, or you're seeing, I mean. Given that a lot of a lot of my discussions, a lot a lot of your impressions, this because they're sort of filtered through Twitter, they can be very very distorting. But there are definitely seem to be uh, voices associated with the left also making that argument that that you know the BBC should be boycotted, we shouldn't be paying the license fee. But I thought it was I thought it was also interesting that actually Guido there was the bogeyman rather than the Murdoch because it's like who was Guido like five years ago? Do you know what I mean? Where compared to Murdoch. Well, it's kind of quite, and there's been that. There's been a, there's a degree being a, something of a fusion between the Guido media and the Murdoch media, hasn't there? Yeah, um, yeah, because they've had um, people going backs and forwards from the Sun, haven't they? That's right, and I think that that's it's a sort of a separate topic and a, a really interesting topic. But you know, we're seeing, I think, a, a hardening of 
of um, right wing, the right wing agenda um, in the tabloids again, which touches on the um, Boris Johnson's notorious remarks um, about um, how women dress. Um, but yeah. that is a that's a that's a massive subject which we haven't uh, we're, we're not going to be able to talk about. Partly because we've got a very long interview, but a, an absolutely engrossing interview um, with um, Jamie Stern Viner. You got it. I got it right, didn't I? You um, did. <laughs> I managed slowly. I managed and to. I like to, I like to create. I like secret. to create a sense of drama. Um, I managed to get it wrong every time I'm speaking to him, um, yeah. but uh, I finally, I finally pulled it out of the bag. Um, yeah. When speaking to the people at large, exactly, because you know matter. we are, if nothing else, servants of the people. Um, but before we get onto the interview, we should mention, shouldn't we, that we are, we have been, we haven't been entirely idle. I haven't been on the beach all the time. Um, we have been working on a uh, media democracy paper. Which sure will be, which it, you know, mentioning um, left critics of the BBC and boycotts is uh, well. Let's say we've been working on a number of things, which would be what we think the left should be doing, rather than simply boycotting. Um, the first of which Dan is now going to chat about. I think. Sorry, because I interrupted you. Yeah, that's that's fine. We what <laughs> we've done, I think, which I hope will be useful, is we've we've tried to set out a, po- a positive agenda. For the BBC, but also for the for the as it were the wider media regime, um, and try to um, reconcile what I think is a factual analysis of its current failings um, with a fairly pragmatic program of both reform and inst- in, in institutional supplementation, if you like. So we're, we're arguing for. Um, Change in the existing arrangements and, and the addition of some new uh, institutions in the um, in the pu- public media space, which I think will be able to, as I say, transcend some of these persistent problems of um, <coughs> what we what we might call bias or pro- problems in coverage in the, in the BBC and elsewhere. Um, and that will be launched along with a number of other policy papers which have been put together by um, Open Democracy. I think there are 15 papers in all. And they'll be launched at the uh, the World Transform Conference at the end of September. Um, at the beginning of September, Tom, you're going to be speaking at the at a, a Derby event, aren't you? Yeah, so we've got World Transformed, which is at the end of September, so that's the 22nd to the 25th, I think. Um, Hopefully, Dan and I will also be speaking there on media reform. I mean, we're going to be there anyway, but we're going to be producing this this pamphlet. um, Also, I should say, before we we go on, um, if anyone wants to find out more about the pamphlet series in general, um, or about the Media Democracy paper, do do get in touch via Twitter. Um, The idea is that we'll print up the, the series, and we will be, um, as I say, we'll be launching them at um, TWT. And what I'd like to try and do is to is to help organise speaker meetings supported by pamphlet sales um, in the period after conference. Sorry, Tom, I yeah. interrupted you. No, you didn't. That's fine. Um, so Dan and I will hopefully be. Uh, we're, we're in the process of organising um, 
trying to organize the panel at the World Transform, so hopefully we will be there. We'll be talking about um, media reform, but well, we, will, we will be there. Whether we're on the panel, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think that's quite finalized. But um, in any case, we will be there. So hopefully we'll see anyone who's, uh, any one of you who are, who are going. Um, and yes, Derby. So there's something called the Derby Transformed, which is uh, it's just trying to transform Derby rather than the rest of the world. Um, but I am going to be speaking about media bias and the BBC there on the 1st of September. So if we have any listeners in the East Midlands area, then come on to that. That should be good. The other thing I wanted to mention while we're on events is, well, listeners will probably know about the um, proposals for uh, BBC reform that Dan and I work for with others for the Media Reform Coalition, uh, which were published, I think, back in March. Well, we're going to have a proper parliamentary launch of that in mid-October. So that should be a public event, which everyone will come to. But I'll, I'll update everybody on the podcast um, about that. But um, yeah, that's coming up uh, the following month in October. So um, yeah, lots happening with the Media Democracy Roadshow. Now, on Media Democracy, we don't like hot takes. We like to have our we like our takes to be lukewarm at most. Um, there's been a huge roiling controversy around Labour's purported anti-Semitism <coughs> problem. Um, the fact that we are now publishing a podcast about it means that it's probably going to die down. Um, we may, we, we may, the curse of media democracy may strike again, and every, everything will, will settle down. But we have uh, with Jamie an, an, an interview which I think bring, brings into play a perspective which is very rarely heard from uh, in mainstream discussions. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extensive interview, and we talk about um, the, uh, the domestic side of the coin, as it were, um, the, uh, the purported problem of anti-Semitism in Labour. Um, and we talk also about um, the politics of Israel-Palestine. Um, Jamie's made a very extensive study uh, of Israel-Palestine. He has recently um, edited a book called Moment of Truth, Tackling Israel-Palestine's Toughest Questions, uh, which is published by All Books. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's a conversation that will be of considerable interest to not just to people interested in the issues, but also in, interested in the ways which these issues play out uh, in the media space, the way that pre-existing... Um, distributions of attention and inattention, um, particular ways of approaching um, foreign policy issues um, uh, play out in, in, in the way that mainstream coverage takes place. So, without further ado, let's roll tape and let's, uh, let's play the interview with Jamie. Jamie, welcome to Media Democracy. Last time we had you on, we were discussing the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party, or I should say the alleged anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party. Um, we are going to have to return to that discussion again today because the crisis has returned. So let's start with the question of what's different this time round? Uh, what's changed since the last time we had you on the show? Uh, it's great to be back here. Uh, it's great to see that the conversation has moved on since our last conversation. Um, I think the current crisis is of a piece with the 
Labour anti-Semitism saga, this sordid campaign, which has now been running for three years, the allegations of Labour anti-Semitism uh, first surfaced when Corbyn became front-runner in the Labour leadership contest in 2015. And since then, they've erupted periodically to dominate the headlines. I think uh, the current round, like its predecessors, is based upon a number of allegations, the majority of which, if not all of which, turn out upon close inspection to be misrepresentations or to be in, uh, or to have imputed anti-Semitism where it does not necessarily exist. I think the interests which are driving the current hysteria are the same interests which have driven uh, previous rounds. So at the kind of schematic level, you might say there are two camps, pro-Israel networks who oppose Corbyn because they see him rightly as a principled supporter of Palestinian rights who cannot be bought and who will not concede on questions of core principle and conviction. The second camp has been, and I think remains, uh, opponents of the Labour Party on the one hand, so you've got, of course, the, the Tories and their supporters in the press, mm -hmm. and opponents of the Corbyn leadership within Labour, in particular within the Parliamentary Labour Party on the other, the 20 or so MPs who have been threatening for a long time now to um, break away and form their own party and would like nothing better than to be able to do it on a supposed issue of moral principle like this anti-Semitism crisis. So as regards the modus operandi and the the motivating interests, I think the current round of this hysteria is entirely of a piece with previous rounds. There's a slight difference in political context. Many of the previous rounds uh, of this anti-Semitism crisis uh, were orchestrated with a view to upcoming political events. So in particular, I'm thinking of the local elections in uh, May 2016 and again in May of this year. Both of those elections saw an eruption of this uh, anti-Semitism scandal um, during the campaign. This time around, I don't see any signs that this was orchestrated in advance with a view to some upcoming event on the political calendar. In fact, it was actually precipitated by uh, a, to all intents and purposes, uh, to all appearances, a good faith effort by the Labour Party to try to reassure its critics, to try to go a long way to meeting their concerns. Um, after this summer, the Labour Party uh, began a process of overhauling its disciplinary procedures to try to make them more efficient and more transparent, and more fair. Part of this involved drawing up a code of conduct on anti-Semitism, which the party didn't previously have. Uh, and it was the release of this code of conduct 
and its adoption by the NEC, Labour's ruling body, uh, which precipitated the current furore. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to, before we get, before we get too much into into that, Jamie, I just wanted to, if we could backtrack slightly, because there are obviously different, different responses to this, uh, this crisis or alleged crisis on the left. So I wanted to maybe, if we can start by being sort of clear about uh, what your own position is um, in terms of the level of anti-Semitism on the left and what exactly your claims are about the nature of the crisis, because this has obviously proved very controversial and there's been different responses from different quarters of the Corbyn supporting left. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's crucial to get this clear uh, because if we don't challenge uh, the underlying premise to this debate and that premise turns out to be unwarranted, then the entire ensuing discussion and ensuing debate becomes very quickly detached from reality. And I think, in fact, uh, that's uh, what's happened. Uh, the underlying premise to much, I would say, in fact, the entirety of mainstream debate on this question has been that Labour has an anti-Semitism problem. And acceptance of this premise has, I think, now become almost a requirement for participation in the mainstream debate. The only problem is that there's no evidence for it whatsoever. The polling data, which is quite extensive, shows, number one, that anti-Jewish animus is low relative to animus against other minority groups. Number two, that it's been stable over time, which is to say there's no evidence of a sudden spike or a sudden crisis of anti-Jewish animus in UK society. Number three, the data on anti-Jewish prejudices suggests that they are distributed relatively evenly across the political spectrum. Uh, A 2017 study by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research noted that anti-Semitism, as expressed through the holding of anti-Jewish prejudices, uh, is indistinguishable on the far left and the left from the general population. So there's no particular problem within uh, the Labour Party's natural constituencies. And finally, what anti-Semitism does exist is not only relatively marginal, stable, and evenly distributed. It's also mild in effect, which is to say that to the extent that anti-Jewish prejudices do exist, just like prejudice against all sorts of groups uh, exist across society, uh, these prejudices do not translate into material disadvantage for Jews. Jews are not filling out the criminal justice system, filling up our jails because they're Jewish. No one is being excluded from certain neighbourhoods for being Jewish. No one fails to get a job because she or he happens to be Jewish. In fact, by every metric, Jews are not only getting by in Britain, but we're positively thriving. So there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, British society in general, or the Labour Party in particular, is experiencing a crisis uh, of anti-Semitism. And I think what's been striking what's been striking is that none of that evidence has been cited in the debate. I mean, take the Pew polls, for example. These are the annual polls which suggest that uh, levels of anti-Jewish animus in the UK are relatively low and stable over time. 
You could count on two hands the number of times that data has been cited in media articles about this crisis. Jim, Jim. Uh, and that's true. That's true on the left as well. So my position is that uh, no evidence has been presented uh, to, to support this assertion of a labour of, of, of an anti-Semitism crisis within labour. And in fact, what evidence we have uh, suggests uh, the contrary. Jamie, yeah. I'm, okay. So I'm, I'm, there's sorry, the sorry, distinction so you're making there, though, between. Sorry, can I, can I quickly you, ask you a question on on the polling data? Because there have there has been there have been polls cited suggesting that very large numbers of people in the UK, and I think again this was an institute for Jewish policy research poll. I could be wrong, but suggesting that a very large very large percentage of people in Britain subscribe to one or other anti-Semitic descriptions or beliefs um, about Jewish people. Um, Forgive me for being rather vague about this research, but are you familiar with that research and would you be in a position to sort of talk through why um, it, it isn't evidence of more wise, of a more widespread problem in society than, than you were suggesting earlier? Yes, so another way of measuring... Uh, so you, the, the Institute for Jewish Policy Research Study, which you referenced, which yeah. is also the, the 2017 study which I referenced earlier, um, it tries to draw a distinction between anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, so it says that committed anti-Semites uh, make up probably two to four percent, two to five percent of the population, which is in line with previous studies. Uh, they're a marginal force. Uh, it, however, it also uh, draws upon another set of data, which again has been available for many years now, which seeks to capture not the extent of anti-Jewish animus, but the prevalence within society of a number of beliefs, a number of generalizations about Jews, uh, which are held to be anti-Jewish. Uh, a lot can be said about that. Actually, there's a very good article by Norman Finkelstein, which will be published on this topic in the coming days. Um, I, won't, I won't go into all of it here. I don't agree that all of the negative generalizations which they take to be evidence or which they take to be anti-Jewish um, are in fact um, evidence of anti-Semitism or should in fact be characterized as anti-Semitic. But even if one uh, sets that aside, the fact remains, number one, that that data doesn't show an increase in the level of these prejudices in society um, recently. They can't, they can't be drawn upon to support claims of a sudden crisis of anti-Semitism. Number two, again, they show that they're relatively evenly distributed across the political spectrum. So this is not a problem of, uh, it's not a particularly left-wing problem. Number three, as the Institute for Jewish Policy Research has itself pointed out, if someone hold, happens to hold an anti-Jewish prejudice, which they've picked up by osmosis from the broader culture, which is probably vestigial from, you know, the medieval era, uh, that doesn't mean that they have any animus against Jews. In fact, the data show this. You can, you can if questioned, uh, it kind of reveal yourself to be harboring a certain prejudice about Jews, like, for example, that they're clannish or that uh, they 
care about money more than other people and so on. But it doesn't follow from that that you are <clears throat> that you harbour any hatred towards Jews or that your political action is determined uh, by this prejudice. I mean, who among us would want to have our subconscious, our unconscious, even our conscious thoughts scanned for prejudices against this group or that group? Is anyone free of prejudice? There's all sorts of prejudices um, against every group you can imagine. Uh, the question is, uh, for a political party and for anyone who's trying to determine their political priorities, uh, are these prejudices uh, leading to material consequences for a certain group? And as I say, there's no evidence in the case of Jews of any material disadvantage attendant upon these uh, these uh, these prejudices. In fact, many of the prejudices that people hold about Jews work to our material benefit. Uh, if you're if you're going for a job interview, you walk in. Let's say you're offered a choice. Would you rather be bald, ugly, short? Or Jewish? What would you pick? What do you think would have the uh, most negative consequences on your chance of getting the job? No one would pick Jewish. None of these prejudices which, is which people hold about Jews, which of course might not be nice, uh, none of them have any material, materially disadvantageous consequences. Okay, so um, that's a particular, let's say, analysis of how we understand um, sentiments or the material consequences of attitudes or racist attitudes about Jews, right? So, but to bring it back to the media, I mean, I think the key question here is more, one of the key distinctions you make is is whether there's a basis for an anti-Semitism crisis as being a different question to whether there is anti-Semitism in right. or anti-Semitic sentiment in the Labour Party, right? I mean, this this seems to me to be the key analytical distinction that you're making. And of course, you know, we, we could have a very long discussion about what racism means, the difference between, yeah, um, you know, material racism or prejudice in society or whatever. Um, but is that a fair way of, of boiling down the argument you're making about the, the distinction we should be looking at, at least in terms of the the basis for the recurring crisis? Yes, I think the claim has always been not that there is some level of anti-Semitism uh, within Labour, which is uh, a truism, it's obviously the case. Uh, the claim has been that there's a crisis of anti-Semitism, which is to say that under Corbyn, anti-Semitism within Labour has become endemic, pervasive, or at least that it has sharply increased. There's no evidence for that, and so then the question we have to ask is, or we should ask, though no one is, is what explains these the, this controversy? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, that's it. that seems to me to be a, a straightforward question. We we'll get to the straightforward answers, I guess. Um, but I imagine listeners probably know where we're going with this. So Dan, did you you wanted to say something? Yeah, I wanted to to ask because as as um, Thomas, you said at the beginning of the program. Uh, Jamie's a is one of our one of our select group of return guests. Um, the last time you came on, 
we talked about the substance of a set of allegations um, about uh, uh, what was, as, again, being ca- characterised as, as a crisis of anti-Semitism that was being um, enabled by Corbyn's leadership in some way. You wrote um, some very forensic pieces, um, one piece in particular I'm thinking of, basically disassembling um, the factual basis or, or destroying the, the any basis that one might have for for, for for taking these anecdotes or these these events um, as being serious evidence of a um, of a massive upsurge in anti-Semitism. And I wanted to ask quite specifically, when you wrote that article in the intervening period, did any journalists like communicate with you privately and say, "Oh, thank you for pointing out that the entire premise of our coverage was wrong"? I mean. Was there any was there any feedback from from journalists at least privately acknowledging that there is a as it were a world of a world of facts that one should sort of try and pay a degree of respect to or not towards but not towards you know we'll, something to we'll bear be, in mind would be good um, no all my efforts are unrequited so that I mean that's really that seems to be a really interesting point because I think it would be very difficult to read your articles at the time, and then compare it with with a lot of the coverage of the time, and think that, that, that there wasn't, as it were, a serious case to answer for the mainstream. Um, because in a number of instances, it seems to me, you showed that the coverage was just based on factually incorrect premises. Um, and again, there is, I mean, perhaps we can talk in a bit more detail about the substance of the allegations um, that are swirling around in this iteration. Um, but again, you know, on a number of instances, it seems that the coverage seems just factually incorrect. Um, we're not. Sort yeah, of- I would say in, in most in most in most instances, it's factually incorrect. Even even when they have a point, they manage to bungle it in some way. I mean, uh, we can get to this later, but no one. Almost no one commenting on the current controversy surrounding this wreath, the notorious wreath, knows anything about the Munich, uh, <laughs> the Munich attack, and the role of these people who are now interred in that attack. Um, but yeah, perhaps it would be worthwhile to look at a couple of the allegations which have surfaced recently. Yeah, let's um, let's do that. Let's talk about a couple of instances where where the coverage has been straightforwardly um, incorrect. If, if, if there are examples um, that you would be happy to characterise in that way. And let's talk a bit about those, uh, those, uh, those, uh, those examples where there is some, some, something of substance, um, but where the, the coverage of, of the substantive issue has been um, in some way uh, warped or has kind of, you know, failed some sort of evidential test. So where are the most egregious examples where you feel that mainstream coverage has sort of taken flight from reality? <laughs> the whole debate is insane. Look what started this current round. It's, it, as I say, Labour made this good faith attempt to uh, try to reassure some of its critics, uh, some of the people who have expressed concerns over its record on anti-Semitism, and they came up with this code of conduct. 
regulating um, anti uh, anti Semitic or allegedly anti Semitic speech within the party. And the response was just hysteria. Why? Because a number of Jewish organizations with whom the Labour leadership has tried to consult with, uh, in fact, they've consulted at length with, despite the bad faith shown by these interlocutors, uh, they demanded from quite early on, and they presented as an ultimatum to the Labour leadership, the elected leadership of a mass party, they presented them with an ultimatum. You adopt this, what's called the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, this is a, a definition of anti-Semitism whose drafting history is rather murky. Uh, I really doubt that most of the people currently commenting on this dispute have read it because it's the most absurd uh, and weird definition of anti-Semitism, I think it would be possible to contrive. The IHRA de so-called definition of anti-Semitism says that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Now, <laughs> the UK representatives to the uh, to the IHRA, they said that to come up with this definition required months of diplomatic negotiations and academic rigour. Well, firstly, I don't see how it can require months of diplomatic negotiations to just copy and paste text from an earlier document. The e there was a document published in 2005 which defined anti-Semitism in the same words. Second, academic rigour. I mean, the only statement, the only phenomena which is excluded by that definition of anti-Semitism is someone who has no perception of Jews whatsoever. Otherwise, any perception of Jews fits that statement. Uh, again, the anti-Semitism is a perception of a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. If I have a perception of Jews which says that Jews are great, uh, and I express that perception by sending every Jewish person I know a box of chocolates, that could qualify as anti-Semitism under this academically rigorous uh, IHRA definition. So the definition is a nonsense. And yeah, it's certainly you have to then express that as hatred of Jews, whatever that means. No, it said you may have, it said may. It may be expressed okay. as hatred towards Jews. So it, it also may not be. It may be expressed as chocolates. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's a completely absurd definition. And then appended to this ridiculous definition are um, 11 what they call illustrative examples of statements which may, depending on the context, indicate anti-Semitism. Seven of the 11 of these examples refer to Israel and discourse around Israel. Uh, many of them are very problematic for freedom of speech and freedom to criticize Israeli policies. Interested listeners may consult uh, Stephen Sedley's article on this in the London Review of Books. He's a former Court of Appeal judge who's also Jewish himself. Uh, they can also read Hugh Tomlinson QC's brief on this issue, on the threat post of free speech. 
by this definition. However, in the interest of trying to reassure, some would say, appease its critics, the Labour Code of Conduct, in fact, adopts the IHRA definition um, almost in its entirety. Uh, it, I think the dispute now has boiled down to one subclause of one of the illustrative examples uh, included in the IHRA definition. Uh, namely, the IHRA definition says, uh, cites as an example of possible anti-Semitism, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of the State of Israel is a racist endeavour. And the Labour Code of Conduct <clears throat> does not include that, that, that sub-clause by claiming that the existence of the State of Israel is a racist endeavour. Uh, on the grounds that this would represent and would pose a risk to free speech. It just shouldn't really need arguing. Israel's leading historian, Benny Morris, he said that transfer, which is a euphemism for ethnic cleansing, was inherent and inbuilt, I think the exact quote is inevitable and inbuilt into Zionism. So is he a racist? Or is it a racist to object to? in ethnic cleansing. That's what the current furore is being fought over, ostensibly. In fact, the real uh, objection uh, is that Labour, Labour's ruling body dared to draw up its own code of conduct instead of simply deferring to the Board of Deputies, to the Jewish Leadership Council and to these other organisations. That's their real um, objection. They think these mostly unelected bodies who represent, insofar as they represent anyone, a constituency which is overwhelmingly not a Labour Party constituency, which is to say they overwhelmingly do not uh, vote for or support Labour, they have tried through moral blackmail and bullying and extortion to impose their will on the elected leadership of a mass party on an issue which uh, were the Labour Party leadership to concede to this bullying would violate the ethics, the principles of Labour members. I mean, it's a, it's really an arrogance that is difficult to fathom. Uh, but that's, that's been, that was the initial root of this current uh, crisis. Now, more reasoned assessments of Labour's code of conduct uh, have, for example, by Brian Klug, the um, eminent uh, Jewish philosopher. He said that the code of conduct is something that anyone who's genuinely concerned, uh, uh, anyone who's genuinely concerned about anti-Semitism should welcome. In my opinion, as I say, I think, I think it goes way too far in conceding to these bad faith actors. I don't think the IHRA definition is of any value whatsoever. Uh, on the contrary, in the battle against anti-Semitism, but. That's now water under the bridge. Uh, it's been adopted. Uh, the furore is entirely about 
who gets to decide Labour Party regulations. It's not about anti-Semitism at all. We can take another... So so, so that was the, the root of the current... Sure. Um, Fury. That's what started it. And then everyone else piled in for their own reasons. Uh, and I think we've seen some really obscene uh, attacks and allegations uh, leveled against the party and against Corbyn personally, actually. It's interesting, the current round of attacks has um, returned to attacking Corbyn personally. That was, uh, people may recall, in 2015, um, during the Labour leadership context, contest, um, the allegations were directed against Corbyn himself. Subsequent rounds were directed more against his supporters. Uh, but now um, they've returned to focus on the man himself. Uh, let's just give a couple of examples to illustrate the insanity and the cynicism that's been uh, that's typical of these allegations. Corbyn came under fire for having hosted Hajjo Maya, a Jewish survivor of Auschwitz concentration camp. Corbyn hosted him on Holocaust Memorial Day in 2010, and at that event, uh, Hajjo Maya presented a universalist. Uh, moral reading of the Holocaust. He was sharply critical of attempts by Israel and its auxiliaries to use the Holocaust to justify Israeli atrocities against the Palestinians. And he sought instead to use his own experiences as a survivor of Auschwitz to use his own suffering to uh, humanize, to embrace, to, to shed light on and sensitize people to the suffering of Palestinians. And for this, for having hosted Hajjomaya, Corbyn was then <laughs> accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's lunatic. Not only was he accused of anti-Semitism for having consorted with the survivor of Auschwitz, but then people set to work to try and dig up dirt on Hajjo Maya, who's now deceased. Yeah. So, of course, can't defend himself. So some, someone dug through his opinions and found that he had a dodgy view on 9-11. So what? People are allowed to have their opinions. Is that what we're doing now? We, we dredge up go through the dustbins of everyone we don't like and we try to sh try even even deceased survivors of Auschwitz and we try to uh, drag their names through the mud one one article even suggested I think it was in it was in a Jewish it was in a Jewish website I forget the name tried to insinuate that he was uh, a collaborator or somehow associated with collaborators. Uh, I mean, it was disgusting. It was really, it was really despicable. Another example, Corbyn was then berated because in a speech he gave, uh, he, uh, several years ago, um, in defense of the people of Gaza, the besieged, occupied, brutalized people of Gaza, 
he had the temerity to point out that Israel's siege of Gaza has now, or had at that point now, lasted as long as the sieges of Stalingrad and Leningrad. Now, obviously, for people in Corbyn's political tradition, probably for no one else, those sieges uh, resonate strongly. They're, they're, they're salient in the historical memory of that particular political tradition. For this observation, Corbyn was then accused of comparing Israel to the Nazis, and which are, the, the IHRA definition says uh, is anti-Semitic. And so, again, more evidence that Corbyn is anti-Semitic. It's interesting, by the way, to note that when the IHRA definition is criticised for potentially infringing on free speech, its defenders point out that it includes a qualifier depending on the context. So in other words, it doesn't necessarily say that every Nazi, not Israel Nazi analogy is anti-Semitic. One has to take into account the context. However, in practice, when it's being instrumentalized to uh, uh, to bludgeon into silence, to intimidate political opponents, that qualifier is always dropped. Is that qualifier for all, all of the examples? Yeah. So in actual fact, the, the definition doesn't define anti-Semitism and then it says that it doesn't really give any concrete examples either. No, it, 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 it uh, <coughs> internalises the controversy rather than resolving it. I mean, it's not a definition of anti-Semitism. It's just a tool to, um, to use against uh, political opponents and in particular against supporters of, the, of, of, uh, of Palestinian rights. Mm-hmm. But I think those examples illustrate uh, the cynicism Jamie, of we... this round, of this hysteria. Yeah. Before we come back to um, the way the way that the, this controversy is is functions, as it were, politically, can we just talk? Can we talk a bit about those those instances where where you feel? as it were, Corbyn's critics have a point, even if they've bungled it. Because surely not all of the um, concern expressed or the anxiety expressed um, about anti-Semitism and Labour is, as it were, in bad faith, right? There are people who believe quite sincerely um, that there is something specifically problematic about um, the Labour left's treatment of Israel-Palestine or Labour Left's treatment of um, conspiracy theory or, you know, its, its tolerance for anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and that, that isn't, as I say, that isn't 100% or, or ever always or necessarily um, um, being expressed in bad faith. So can we talk a bit about, about what you make of those areas where... Um, there do seem to be some some problems, um, and well, and, and and perhaps we can talk a bit about why it is why the, why why if if as you say the this controversy is to, to a very large extent synthetic. Um, how do we account for, as it were, good faith um, commentators? Who are are willing to to take on a, a view about the problems in Corbyn's labour that you you would you would argue is quite fantastical. 
I would draw a distinction between the drivers of this campaign, uh, those interests, those actors who have led uh, the charge against Corbyn, against Labour, uh, against Labour members on this issue, uh, and many people who read the stories and who understandably are concerned. For example, I don't think it's difficult at all to explain why many British Jews uh, would be very concerned about the Labour Party. We've just had three years of constant stories. I mean, firstly, many British Jews in general are not, uh, they do not trust the pro-Palestinian left um, for a long time. They, they completely disagree with them on their political outlook. So it's not like they're starting from a position of trust um, and sympathy. But then on top of that, for the past three years, there's been a constant torrent of stories in the press, rarely challenged, uh, almost never challenged in the Jewish press, but almost, uh, but but rarely challenged in general, uh, saying that Labour is overrun with anti-Semitism. So I don't think it's so obscure, um, and I certainly agree. One doesn't need to reach for bad faith to explain why um, ordinary. British Jews would be worried, would be concerned. Uh, I also think on the left, so among Corbyn supporters, they're very uncomfortable. Look, this is a very uncomfortable situation because you have le uh, leading organisations uh, representing purporting to represent and to a large extent on this particular issue, in fact, representing um, the Jewish community, a minority community. Uh, and they are alleging that Corbyn would pose an existential threat to British Jews. Uh, and they've also made clear that nothing short of Corbyn's ejection from public life uh, will be or total capitulation uh, to their terms will suffice for them to call off these attacks for them to end these criticisms but that puts people on the left in a very difficult quandary uh, at least for some because it's not that they're not very comfortable in telling the leadership of a minority group that uh, what they have to say about racism against their own group isn't. We're not going to take that as decisive. Um, that's not. That's not a typical position that the left finds itself in, and so it's created some dissonance. On the one hand, these are bad faith. These these are these leadership institutions are acting in bad faith, and they won't take yes for an answer. They want Corbyn out. So if one doesn't want to get rid of Corbyn, then one has to draw a line somewhere uh, short of that. But on the other hand, to draw a line somewhere short of that would mean to say, we hear what you're to, to the British, to the Board of Deputies, for example, to the Jewish Leadership Council, uh, to the campaign against anti-Semitism and so forth, to say, uh, we've had enough 
we don't accept your diagnosis. Uh, we don't agree. We've consulted. We've deliberated. We've considered this at length, and we're moving on. And that's a that's a difficult position for many people to take. Although I do think it's the correct one, um, as a matter of principle, as a matter of truth, and as a matter of pragmatic strategy. Uh, and I also see signs now um, of a kind of renewed will among commentators on the left uh, to take that harder line and to resist the moral blackmail that these organizations are effectively uh, deploying. Now, as at a kind of deeper level, it's of course true that there's anti-Semitism on the left, just, uh, just as elsewhere. Um, it's true that if you go on Facebook, you can find people posting about the Rothschilds, uh, the, you know, Mossad was behind 9-11 and this kind of conspiracy theorizing. Um, I think that's a product of um, weakness on the left for a long period, um, which combined with um, this renewed search for um, an anti-elitist politics means that that politics can at times uh, borrow from conspiracy theorizing. I don't see anti-Semitism always behind it. And I think it's, as I say, I think it's a marginal presence. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a mild phenomenon in terms of its effects. Um, there's no one organizing within Labour or on the left on the basis of an anti-Jewish politics. There's no one trying to push forward any anti-Jewish measures or policies. In fact, as the Institute for Jewish Policy Research emphasised, British Jews are viewed overwhelmingly positively in British society. Uh, and that's true across the political spectrum with the exception of the far right. Well, so there's... We've already established that the the IHRA definition says that having any view about Jews is could be anti-Semitic. So the fact people in Britain are overwhelmingly positive about Jewish people <laughs> might be... <laughs> yeah, evidence, more evidence, more evidence. Might be evidence um, that there's a deep yeah. problem. And look, in general, look, it's understandable if Jew, Jews, Jews are, you know, as, as Woody Allen famously, you know, satirised, Jews are hypersensitive to anti-Semitism for obvious historical reasons and understandable historical reasons. Um, but this isn't a, a Corbyn-specific phenomenon. I mean, uh, there was there were surveys done after Operation Protective Edge in 2015. Um, not, not methodologically sound surveys, actually. But um, in any case, they found uh, extreme levels of alarm uh, alarmism, even hysteria among British Jews and prominent British Jewish uh, writers. I mean, some people were saying it reminds them of the 1930s. This has nothing to do with Corbyn. This predates it. This just happens every time um, uh, Israel comes under sustained criticism for one of its massacres. Um, there are understandable reasons uh, why people might believe in them as well as the organized interests who are orchestrating the campaign. Uh, 
I think the best policy, the best response to both has to be to stick to truth, to stick to evidence and to maintain a sense of uh, perspective. I mean, on that, on that issue of perspective, um, perhaps this is a good time to um, talk a bit about recent events in, in Gaza. Um, Tom, are you, are you still with us? You've been quite quiet. I am indeed. You are, perfect. Um, so, we've, yeah, so, in recent days there has been a, a shift away from what people may or may not have said in the Labour Party or in ways in which Labour Party policy may or may not be problematic. Um, and attention has turned, belatedly, to events in Israel, Palestine. Jenny, what you know, what what do you make of recent developments in the way that these events are being discussed now? So, uh, I think there's actually uh, a, a commonality in the way that the Labour anti-Semitism, on the one hand, and Israel's um, repression of the protests in Gaza have been discussed. Um, in both cases, these these uh, spin campaigns have worked at two mutually reinforcing levels. So, at the kind of more superficial level, but still very effective, you get this constant torrent of misinformation and disinformation, false allegations or disingenuous disavowals. But then there's also a deeper framing which serves to consecrate certain premises as unquestionable, uh, as common sense. And those two levels are mutually reinforcing. Of course, on the one hand, the torrent of disinformation shores up the underlying framing. But more importantly, I think, the underlying framing makes it difficult to rebut the torrent of disinformation. Because once you accept those underlying premises, uh, you're on the defensive from there on out, and you find yourself arguing over details uh, on an unfavourable terrain. In the case of the anti-Semitism scandal, as we discussed, this underlying premise um, is that Labour has a serious anti-Semitism problem. And because no one feels confident enough, everyone is too intimidated to point out that this isn't true, the whole debate becomes detached from reality. Uh, in the case of Gaza, there's a similar um, premise, which very quickly became established across the political spectrum, including at the most critical poll, that is to say, among those who are most critical of Israel's conduct in Gaza. And that premise is that Israel has some Israel has a right to use some amount of force to stop Palestinians in Gaza from breaching the perimeter fence. Uh, now, perhaps I should back up a bit and just explain first briefly what's been going on in Gaza. So, beginning on March 30th, Palestinians in Gaza began a mass and overwhelmingly non-violent campaign of regular sit-ins, uh, performances, marches, demonstrations uh, along the perimeter fence which cages Gaza in. 
the goal was initially set uh, by the organizers as um, an attempt to draw attention to the Palestinian right of return, the right of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. But over time, uh, the, sh the, the focus shifted to demanding an end to Israel's illegal siege. Uh, I think that uh, it's clearest for us to focus on the period, the two-month period, the first two months of those protests, uh, basically from it, the, their inception on the 30th of March until about the end of May, when Israel killed six Palestinian militants um, in an apparent attempt to provoke a violent reaction, and after because after that point things got a little murkier. But let's just focus on the the two-month period at the beginning, 30th of March to the end of May. Uh, what is Gaza? Gaza has been under an illegal occupation for a half century. And on top of this illegal occupation, it's been placed under, for more than a decade now, a criminal, medieval-like siege. The siege as the Red Cross... Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and all the other respected international authorities have pointed out it's a flagrant breach of international law. It's also rendered Gaza physically unlivable. More than 97% of the tap water in Gaza is now unfit for human consumption. The World Health Organization has warned that over a million people in Gaza are at, the, are at risk of contracting waterborne diseases. An Israeli expert has predicted that Gaza will soon be overrun by typhoid and cholera epidemics, like those that decimated the Jewish population of the Warsaw Ghetto. In fact, already, water-related diseases are the primary cause of child morbidity in Gaza, and they account for a quarter of illnesses in Gaza. So that's what Gaza is. It's a ghetto as Haaretz called it. It's an open-air prison, to use the words of former British Prime Minister David Cameron. The UN Human Rights Chief, he said Gaza is a toxic slum in which people are caged from birth to death. The Economist called it a human rubbish heap. Baruch Kimmeling, the late and eminent Israeli sociologist at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, he called it concentration camp. What's been happening? Well, the protests, as I say, were overwhelmingly non-violent. How did Israel respond? It lined up snipers along its side of the fence and it just methodically, systematically opened fire on unarmed demonstrators. Uh, Human Rights Watch, a senior Human Rights Watch official, described it as follows, quote, This is about individual snipers safely ensconced hundreds of feet even further away, targeting individual protesters and executing them one at a time. It was, as Amnesty International called it, a murderous assault against demonstrators who were merely protesting for an end to a criminal blockade that has left that territory unlivable. Now, what's interesting about the debate around this 
is that people have just completely lost sight of this reality, even on the most critical poll. So if you take the human rights organizations, they've been very critical of Israel's repression of these protests. But their criticism has taken the form of arguing that Israeli force, of alleging that Israeli forces deployed disproportionate or excessive force against um, the Gaza protesters. Now, implicit in that criticism, of course, is that had Israeli snipers, Israeli forces used proportionate or moderate force to stop the besieged people of Gaza from breaching the perimeter fence, then it would have been okay. In fact, at one point, a human rights watch spokesperson even recommended that Israel use skunk water, which is like a very foul-smelling liquid, um, use, use that as a way to um, stop these protests or contain these protests. It's just, uh, it's just uh, insane. I mean, does that sort of reflect the kind of advocacy approaches and the, the legalism of these human rights bodies? I mean, it seems to be a, a sort of position that they have anyway, that not to comment on the rights and wrongs of a conflict, but to sort of focus on the conduct of uh, the, the conduct and the kind of procedure. Or are you saying that that that, sh that the human rights organisations shouldn't be doing that? They should be talking more about the occupation. I'm saying that what they should be saying is that Israel's use of force in Gaza is inherently illegal. Mm -hmm. I think we'd, anyone would understand this if we take another situation. For example, would anyone now debate whether or not uh, uh, <coughs> Nazi German forces use disproportionate force against the Warsaw Ghetto uh, fighters? Would anyone debate whether it was excessive? Would anyone enter into these interminable considerations about whether, um, because the Jewish resistance organization used arms, which again, these protests did not in Gaza, but the Jewish resistance organization openly used arms, whether that then entitles um, Israel, or sorry, in that case, Nazi Germany, to use force in self-defense, so that the debate then becomes narrowed to these technical questions about exactly what level of force is, is necessary and required in this particular case, uh, it gets bogged. The effect of that shift is to allow Israel all the wiggle room in the world to evade condemnation in the court of public opinion. Because once you get bogged down to, to questions of what is proportionate force and what's disproportionate force, it's very technical. Israel can say, well, look, skunk water wouldn't have worked in stopping these people from crossing the fence. There was too many of them. Mm. Or no, I'm, the range I'm not really... I'm not so, really defending the argument, but I've just, I suppose, I'm just wondering if it, some of it emerges out of the sort of frame, legal, legalistic framework that the human rights organisations do to try and sort of navigate the, the politics, or sort of dodge the politics, of life, I suppose, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think, I think it's, it, on the one hand, it emerges out of this, um, as you say, legalistic, um, attempt to find the argument that will most easily stick and avoid controversial, uh, excessively controversial, as they would put it, excessively controversial arguments. But I think, and it's also, of course, because they come under a lot of flack 
mm. well, the Israeli side of the debate. Um, but I think the first duty of a human rights organization is to, uh, is to state the truth about what's going on. I mean, it's not most of these human rights investigations, their ultimate, ultimate value is not legal. Because there's mm. very few cases. Or factual, which, really. Yeah, they, people rely on them as uh, the most impartial, uh, authoritative account of factually what's going on. Yeah. And what and, and to describe what's going on in Gaza as a case of disproportionate response uh, to, to to protests, it misrepresents factually what's going on, and it yeah. also applies, as I say, implicitly. <clears throat> legitimizes some use of force um, by Israel in, in so-called self-defense. I mean, I think a useful analogy to think of is, let's say there's an owner of a theater, and he, uh, when, when, when the theater's you know, full of um, people, uh, all the seats are filled, he sets the, he sets the room on fire. And then when they try to escape, he blocks them. And in order to escape the inferno, they beat him. They push him out the way. They pummel him so that they can escape this, uh, this death trap. If, can he then cite self-defense to, if he then fights back against them as they're trying to escape, can he cite self-defense for his actions even as he's continuing to prevent them from escaping? It's crazy. I mean, think of another example. Can a can a a, a rapist cite self defense if his victim starts hitting him to stop the attack? Of course not. While he's while he's continuing the attack, he can't cite self defense uh, if the victim resists. Okay, so what, what you're saying, yeah, so what you're saying is that the, yeah, the, the context itself can't be taken out, otherwise it becomes, it's actually concretely misrepresenting what's going on. It, it's, it's substantially misleading in this Absolutely. case. Yeah. So, and so, I mean, you mentioned the human rights organizations there. I, I wanted to bring the discussion, um, back to the media, really, which is what we tend to focus on in the podcast. Um, what's your sense of uh, the, the media's take on, I mean, we've, we've talked about the anti-Semitism crisis. I mean, I think, you know, mainly discussing it from the terms of the Labour Party and, um, yes, some of the sort of pro-Israel interests, as it were, with the media a bit more in the background. Um, how significant do you think the politics of the media and the way that the media report these particular issues have been for the ways in which um, these two sort of, I suppose, related, uh, but but rather different political phenomenons we've been discussing have been, uh, firstly, how they're represented there, but how materially significant do you think the, the media are for the ways in which they unfold? The effect of, I mean, this is your area of expertise more than mine. My understanding is the effect of media coverage um, is much harder to, on people's opinions, is much harder to measure than... Uh, the, you know, analyzing the content. Uh, I mean, is that is that is that what you're? Kind no, of I, I wasn't about? really. I wasn't really thinking in terms of what what the impact is in terms of, um, let's say, persuading people of one thing or another. But I wanted to sort of 
continue with this discussion of the ways and the assumptions which are, are built into the arguments, what kind of effect that has for people engaging with the media. Um, mm. So, well, so, 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 first of all, first of all, um, to, to what extent do you think a different sort of media might might report on these differently? I mean, I suppose the obvious answer is we first of all we want them to do it accurately and to try and describe as best um, the way the media, uh, the way you know what's actually happening rather than what's, I guess, politically expedient. But secondly, um, when I was talking about material consequences, I was thinking more of um, once these particular perspectives seem to have been picked up and been the basis for the discussion, what kind of impact that has. And, I mean, I don't want to keep piling on questions, but what do you think would be the best way of um, mm. to navigate mm -hmm. that and engage with that? Um, yeah. Well, I think a different sort of media would be less deferential and it would be willing to point out bad faith um, when it's manifest. So we've already talked about the anti-Semitism case. Take the case of Gaza and um, uh, and Israel's repression of those protests. So it's 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 well known, it's easily document documentable that the Israeli authorities routinely lie about their conduct vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians. To take an obvious example. A, f a notorious example, in 2008-9, during Operation Cast Lead, Israeli forces repeatedly dropped white phosphorus on densely populated civilian neighborhoods, as well as on shelters where civilians were trying to hide out. Now, during that conflict, even after it was very clear, there was images, there was footage, um, there's evidence collated by human rights organizations. Um, even after it was very clear that white phosphorus had been used, the, uh, the Israeli army chief of staff and spokesman denied that Israel used white phosphorus in Gaza, flat out denied it. The quote, the quote they said was, quote, the allegations of the IDF, that's the Israeli army, using white phosphorus are false. Then as human rights organizations began to publish undeniable evidence to the contrary, the New York Times, which is the most important, um, I think, uh, publication for reporting on this conflict um, abroad, the New York Times then reported that controversy as follows. Early in the war, this is quoting from the Times, Israeli officials would not confirm whether the military was using white phosphorus at all. So not only did they initially give some credence to IDF statements, but they then actually dissembled to cover up the lie. Mm. They wouldn't even say, oh, actually, the IDF has been caught out flat out lying. And we've seen that um, pattern reiterate, um, where basically um, the, the New York Times, uh, for example, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a representative example, and it certainly it's the most important example, um, if it gives credence to Israeli propaganda, and then when that propaganda is challenged, instead of reporting a clear falsification, uh, the two accounts are then recast as dueling narratives over what happened, with the reader left in perfect freedom, but also without any ability to decide who is right. So mm -hmm. give, let's give one example, particularly uh, revolting. I have to say, uh, Israeli forces on, on the 1st of June, they killed a 20-year-old paramedic. She was called Razan al-Najjar. 
There's no dispute about what happened. She was dressed in her white medical uniform. She had her hands raised in the air as she approached an injured protester uh, who she was hoping to treat. And while she was doing that, she was shot by an Israeli sniper. A few days later, the IDF, the Israeli military, they released a heavily edited clip from a past interview with Razan al-Najjar, the paramedic, in which she was quoted as saying, I am here on the front line and I act as a human shield. Now this was a, this was a falsification. The footage was uh, doctored. The full clip shows that she actually stated, I'm acting as a human rescue shield to protect the injured inside the armistice line. In other words, I'm here to risk my life to come and protect the people who've been shot. And that was... So the actual take, a recording of that had actually been doctored and edited and released. The doctoring involved quoting like two seconds from a longer bit of footage to misrepresent what has happened, as well as um, uh, translating it in kind of the most sinister sounding way mm. and not the way that best conveyed her meaning. Now, the, what was interesting about that was, number one, I mean, it shows the depths to which Israeli propaganda sinks. But number two, it shows how confident they are that they won't be called out about it by the outlets which matter, because the original footage from which that clip was taken is easily, freely available online. Anyone who speaks Arabic can just go to YouTube, could, could have just gone to YouTube, found the original and the falsification would be, would be manifest. But the Israeli propagandists felt confident that mainstream journalists wouldn't bother to take that step, and they were right. Their James, what, was just stay, at what stage did, uh, well, people outside of the mainstream media expose this as being a fabrication? Instantly. Instantly. So actually, yeah, so it, it, in fact it had been exposed straight away, and it was still being reported. I mean, it was, still being, it was still being reported, and then once, I think it was The Intercept, which then um, uh, kind of published this counter, this counter evidence, um, the, exposure, the expose, and then The Intercept is sufficiently um, mainstream that then kind of other mainstream acts have to at least take note of it. But as I say, what, what, like the New York Times, for example, it then didn't say Israeli footage of slain med medic um, shown to be doctored or Israel smears slain paramedic. It reported as what or, uh, reported it in the context of a, of a clash of narratives over what happened. And in fact, the Times reporter even suggested on the basis of this doctored footage that whereas Al-Najjar presents, you know, the, the slain paramedic volunteer, whereas she presents the image of a fresh-faced innocent, um, the reality is more complex. Oh, Jesus. It was, it was disgusting. Um, and, uh, but typical. Yeah, no, that, that's awful. I mean, it, I, I suppose it does speak to the, the, what, the sort of editorial culture of a lot of these institutions where, in certain circumstances, they will they will seek balance between two different perspectives, and in other instances, they will um, try and 
get to the bottom of the matter. It's another instance that don't even bother doing that and just will simply defer to one particular source without even A, balancing it with an alternative perspective or B, like sort of look, look for any verification from another source or, exactly. or reality. And they'll treat the mere the mere the mere making of an allegation by some sources. Obviously, if Hamas makes a certain allegation, that alone will not make any headlines in the New York Times. But if, if Israeli military makes an allegation, that that that's a news story in itself. They feel they feel fine to just relay that, even though the Israeli military is systematically deceitful about what it does. Because of the Palestinians, Israeli—I mean, Israeli journalists openly say that there was an article in Haaretz, the leading Israeli—well, not leading in circulation figures, unfortunately, but um, the most serious Israeli paper—a um, few days ago about uh, what's happening with regards to a possible ceasefire in Gaza. And he said, "Look, we've come to trust Hamas um, press releases about this much more than Israeli press releases." I mean, Israeli journalists are well aware that. Um, Israeli official sources are not to be trusted, but they, they continue to be um, cited reverentially um, and given credence in outlets like the New York Times. And as for the as for the kind of broader framing, um, as I say, no one no one's <laughs> the basic framing of here are some clashes along the border between Gaza and Israel. And the debate is to what extent has um, Israel's response to these clashes in the context of protecting its border, um, to what extent has that response been excessive? Mm. And that's the debate. Let, let, let alone that, that, you know, set aside that the fence along separating Gaza from Israel is no more border than Gaza is a state. Set aside that Gaza is a ghetto. A uh, concentration camp into which two million people, more than half of them children, have been confi- confined for more than a decade. Uh, set aside that under international law, Israel has no right to use force to suppress a self determination struggle, and that its claimed right to self defense in this context amounts to the right to use force to impose an illegal siege atop an illegal occupation. That basic premise is never um, challenged. And it's interesting, isn't it, in that by not challenging that premise, the coverage follows implicitly a, a, a pattern whereby the West and its allies are adults, and it's uh, the, those who are at the receiving end of Western force are infantilized, right? So Israel has a an unexamined right to admonish um, disruptive behaviour by the inhabitants of Gaza, but perhaps it exceeded the bounds of what uh, a dutiful parent might do to a wayward child. So when we think about patterns of coverage, it seems to me there, there is a, a tendency in, in, in the West to, inf- to infantilise our enemies, to say that they, their resistance to us is in some way illegitimate, um, because they should be in a relationship of tutelage to us, um, uh-huh. because we're better than them in some way, we're more civilised. And therefore we have to hold ourselves to a much higher standard, um, because we're, we are, as it were, um, the upholders of civilization, um, when all evidence um, contradicts that. It still seems to be a, a, a pattern of assumptions that 
we can fall, Western journalists can fall into, almost by allowing their prejudices full reign, by just allowing the prejudice to play out. It turns out that we had to invade Iraq to save the, them from themselves. Uh, you know, the Israelis have to do these terrible things because because of childish resistance um, mm. by by the Palestinians. Um, and it has major consequences. I mean, this was an this was an exp- people abroad have spent years, decades lecturing Palestinians that they should try non-violent resistance. This was a bold and courageous and inspiring experiment in non-violent, mass non-violent resistance uh, and under conditions which are un- unimaginably adverse. Mm. I mean, I wonder how long the American civil rights movement would have remained non-violent if more than 60 people had been gunned down in broad daylight, if children were just being gunned down in broad daylight, if on one single day more than 1,300 people were shot with live ammunition, many of them with expanding or exploding bullets, which left exit wounds in their legs the size of fists, with the intention of permanently disabling them. I mean, that's a level of repression of non-violent resistance, which... uh, is nearly I don't I don't I'm not confident enough of the history to say completely unprecedented, but it's um nearly unprecedented. And in the face of that, the people of Gaza managed to maintain an overwhelmingly nonviolent mass protest for months. And when is when but but of course the the power, the potential political efficacy of nonviolent resistance relies upon its effect on public opinion elsewhere. And to have that effect, the non-violent nature of the resistance must be effectively communicated. It must be seen to be non-violent. But but instead, Israel's, um, Israel's muddying of the waters, in fact, its outright falsification, its attempt to portray these demonstrations as violent terrorist assaults on its borders, they gained a lot of traction on the international press. Um, At the very least, the waters were muddied. Uh, And actually, they came to be associated with violent... uh, They they were basically presented as violent clashes. Um, And so the people who died were effectively assassinated a second time. Their martyrdom was not only um, uh, misrepresented; it was betrayed because its 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 um, it, its misrepresentation presented it from having any uh, political consequence. Mm. Yeah, its its specifically moral character was denied. Exactly, um. and I have to say, uh, it's it's actually a regression. So it represents a um, regression from um, even the New York Times' previous um, performance. So the first Intifada, which erupted in December 1987, it was also an overwhelmingly 
um, in its early years, an overwhelmingly non-violent popular resistance. And it did have a transformative effect on international um, public opinion. Uh, the New York Times is itself very good evidence of that. So in the years leading up to that uprising, that popular uprising, the New York Times had repeatedly characterized Israel's occupation as benign, as a kind of liberal occupation, even um, benevolent. But after the first intifada, in fact, even within the first few months of the first intifada, um, and Israel's brutal crackdown on that, uh, the New York Times dramatically changed its tone. So there was an article um, which said, for example, that over nearly 27 years that Israel's occupied the West Bank and Gaza, American supporters of Israel has often described the occupation as benign. It was a wishful notion, a reassuring illusion. Now the, now the illusion is over. And in fact, an editorial published by the New York Times, less than two months into the Intifada, January 1988, I think it, it, it makes for quite surprising re uh, reading now. I'll just quote from it. This was a, a New York Times editorial. Israel is resorting to brazen brutality. The state that once promised deliverance to the oppressed has truly lost its way. Thus does a truly humane country with the democratic government that is determined to deny parallels with South Africa, invite parallels with South Africa. When a democratic government turns to thuggery as policy, it risks losing far more than control. So the first intifada, its non-violent character was communicated. And it had a transformative effect on international opinion. But on this occasion, I think Israel's misrepresentations, its muddying the waters, have unfortunately been successful, in part, I suppose, to the demonization of Hamas and the efficacy of associating these protests with Hamas. Mm -hmm. mm. We've been talking for a while now, Jamie, but um, before we wrap things up, I wanted to sort of finish on a... Um, I guess a sort of prescriptive question about what what people should do about this. Uh, Dan and I, as you may or may not know, have our own ideas about what we can do about the media to create a sort of structural reform. And obviously, it would be useful if we had a media that was more interested in reality than um, deferring to politically interested parties. Um, given that the media is how it is, uh, and this is probably a question for not many people, because not many people get to invited to go on the media, but given that the media is how it is, I wonder how you think the best way of the left intervening in that space is, or 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 if that's you think that's useful. I mean, I suppose it seems to follow from your analysis that the way to do that is to reject some of the underlying premises of the discussion in, in both in both cases that we've been uh, discussing. But I mean, firstly. Uh, violence by the Israeli state and the history of occupation, but earlier on about the um, allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Exactly. That would be my first advice. Don't go along with premises that aren't true and which, once accepted, will put you on the defensive and on the back foot. Mm -hmm. That's crucial. Don't think that by conceding the premises where they're not true, of course, if they are true, then they should be conceded. Where they're not true, don't think that by conceding them, you're somehow going to appease the other side 
and be able to occupy a kind of reasoned, reasonable middle ground. The other side will just, precisely because this is a bad faith campaign, they'll just take your concessions and use them against you. Mm. For example, if you say, yes, there is a very serious problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, then they'll just say, well, why hasn't, Labour, why hasn't Corbyn done anything about it so far? Why has he been so slow? Mm. Why is there why is there a serious problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? What's what isn't Corbyn responsible for that? And it just goes on and on. And you've already lost your ability now to go back and say the whole this whole discussion is no basis to reality. So number one, don't go along with false premises, and always be careful because pe usually when an argument is made by someone who's good at making arguments, once you accept their premises. Everything else follows, and it's you, you become trapped. Uh, you become trapped in their logic; it becomes mm. kind of inescapable. So you really need to focus on the premises. Um, the second point is, don't don't be cringing and defensive all the time. Be assertive. I mean, that was what's so good about. Uh, I think what's so heartening for me about this um, increased assertiveness in the past few days following Netanyahu's intervention. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's intervention, his criticism of Corbyn, uh, people finally had enough and they went back, we pushed back uh, assertively, strongly and confident of our own traditions. Uh, if you do that, if you're um, confident, you stick to truth uh, and you're assertive, then, then, uh, then we can make a compelling case. That's as good a note to end on as any, I think. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today to talk, talk through these uh, these issues. Can you remind listeners of uh, the, the book that you've recently published? I recently edited a volume on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It was It's called Moment of Truth, Tackling Israel-Palestine's Toughest Questions. And interested readers can... Uh, find it on the OR Books website, orbooks.com. Brilliant. And I know how, how what a reluctant um, self-publicist you are. It's one of many, <laughs> many, things, many things to your credit. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, Thank thanks. you, Jamie. And to all listeners, uh, follow Jamie on Twitter as well and, and buy his book. <laughs>